0: All right. Please turn with me to John chapter six. John chapter six. In case you missed it, we are we're doing our our church picnic this afternoon, uh, which I love our church picnic. I love the opportunity we get all our campuses together. Haven't seen friends uh, from the other campuses in a while. Um, I will say, I asked one of our deacons at the uh, beginning of the first service. Said, "Well, you know, what's what's the weather forecast today?" And he said, "Hot." But you know, I mean, we're we're Texans, right? We can handle that. Um, We're used to that. I I and I don't want to make you feel like jealous or anything. But when I was a kid, my one of my absolute favorite days of the year was our church picnic in New York. And I'm, I'm going to show you a picture of where we held our church picnic. Um, yeah, I know. It's really like amazing. It's one of the most beautiful places I think uh, on the earth, it's Robert S. Truman State Park, river runs through the park, there's multiple waterfalls, this amazing swimming hole, right, and it was, you know, hot in the summer, but not like Texas hot, but the water was ice cold, it was just, it was amazing, I loved it, so we, you know, we'd show up and we'd have hot dogs and hamburgers and play softball and Frisbee and everything, and the best thing about it all was that I didn't have to plan any of it, right, I mean, it's, it's awesome to be a kid, as an adult, you know this, right, you just, I just showed up. I didn't think about who was cooking or who was going to clean up afterwards or anything. I just I just showed up completely unprepared and ready to be served, right? It's great to be a kid. Now, as, as, and as an adult, right, you look back, you go, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be amazing again if somebody else just took care of everything? So uh, for you kids who are sitting with your parents right now, I know it's hard to really absorb this truth, but, but they do everything for you. So I just want you to take a moment and just say, thank you. So go ahead right now. Let's go ahead. Okay, let's pray. No, actually, I do have a message this morning. Uh, We're going to talk about what I would consider, in a sense, kind of like the greatest church picnic ever, feeding of the 5,000. And what's interesting, you know, as we work our way through the story, you'll notice that pretty much everybody showed up kind of like a kid, completely unprepared, expecting to be served, except for one little boy who came prepared and ready to share. And I think he really is the hero of the whole story, even though he's just briefly mentioned. And so uh, we're going to kind of focus our attention uh, ultimately on, on him and his, uh, his attitude and his willingness to share what he had. Right? So I want you to re- read with me, beginning in John chapter 6 and verse 1. John writes, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd that was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself already knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are those for so many people? So Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So as I Uh, work our way through this story with you. I want us to begin by just noticing each of the the participants uh, in this moment. The first I want to point our attention to is the hungry multitude. In uh, John's Gospel and each of the other Gospels, it says there were 5,000 men, which means there were probably over 20,000 people. So when you add in uh, spouses and children, you're looking at upwards of 20,000 people, and they're all very, very needy people. Remember, uh, Jesus has moved into the region of Galilee and he's been going around Galilee and as people see his miracles, they're following him, they're chasing after him. So they're bringing everyone who's sick in their family or their sick friends, their friends who have diseases or are demonically possessed and they're wanting Jesus to meet all of their needs. And beyond this now, they are literally hungry. Right? They, they haven't adequately prepared. They, they, it says they, some of them ran out of their houses. To chase after Jesus. So they're, they're not ready. It's now at the end of the day. They don't have anything to eat. They're literally hungry. And what happened last time you had thousands of Israelites in the wilderness hungry? I mean, it's, it's not good, right? It's a, it's a tense time. They're needy in every respect. Physically, spiritually, they're demanding. If you notice the setting here, I don't know if you caught this. John chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So we're about a, a year before Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, they're, They're not quite ready for the Passover. They haven't prepared everything for their pilgrimage, but they hear that Jesus is moving around the area again, and they wonder if he's Messiah, right? And they want him to be Messiah, because they have needs that are also not just physical and spiritual, but in a sense political, right? They're, they're under Roman oppression, and they're hopeful that Jesus will be the one who will cast off all uh, taxation and oppression from Romans and all these things. And, and actually, John provides us some commentary. If you uh, skip over the miracle section, we'll come back to that uh, momentarily. But look at verse 14. It says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed... They said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They're hoping and praying and expecting that when Passover comes shortly, that they will have kept track of Jesus and know where he is so that they can go on the pilgrimage with him and go into Jerusalem and make him king. they're, they're, They're physically hungry, but they're spiritually hungry as well. Years ago, Alfred Edersheim made this commentary. He said, What they waited for was a kingdom of God, not in righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, but in meat and drink. A kingdom with miraculous wilderness banquets to Israel and coarse, miraculous triumphs over the Gentiles, that is, the Romans. So, in every respect, these people are hungry. The second group that we encounter is what I would call the reluctant servers. This is the disciples. Right? They, they show up, uh, but they are definitely reluctant. Turn back to Mark chapter 6. I want us to look at Mark's account of the same miracle. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. It says, The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw that a large crowd had already gathered, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, uh, if we're honest, working uh, with Jesus was not a picnic, right? It was was hard. First of all, you had to contend with the other 11 disciples. I've scoured the Gospels for years, and I have yet to find a pleasant interaction amongst the disciples. I mean, they're always trying to jockey for position and power and prestige. They're never serving one another. They're never serving Jesus so they had to put up with the eleven. They had to uh, recently be sent out in ministry. Jesus pairs them up two by two, sends them out. They're traveling apparently throughout Galilee, probably for weeks. They've they've finished uh, healing people and casting out demons and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And they're utterly and completely exhausted. Jesus even says to them, you know, I recognize you're exhausted. You haven't even had time to eat. Let's, let's come away to a secluded place. And so they go to that place. People find out that they're going and they run ahead of them. So by the time they arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there are multitudes that are waiting for them with more needs. And Jesus says, welcome. I mean, clearly, Jesus doesn't know what's good for himself, right? Right. So the disciples have to step in and they have to protect Jesus from himself. Look at verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and they said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into surrounding, the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, when I read those verses, I think um, that's just Wisdom. Right? That, that is, that's that's kind of how I'm, I'm oriented toward life. I would have said, Jesus, you really haven't created adequate boundaries for yourself, right? You need to, you need to live a little more wisely. Right? Have you ever been in this place where you're utterly and completely exhausted and then there's just one more expectation placed upon you? Right? Your phone rings and there's this beautiful thing called caller ID and you can go, ignore, right? Just created a boundary. But then sometimes you can't. If somebody knocks on the door or if you've got kids, they wake up in the middle of the night and they're, they're frightened or they're sick and there's no ignore button on your kids, right? You have to deal with it right then, right? Or if you're a mom of toddlers, you know it's just like constantly pulling, 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 pulling. You're like, okay, just, just give me a moment, right? Just, and I look at this, I go, you know, the disciples actually are they're speaking some wisdom in Jesus' Jesus's life right now. Jesus, let's, let's create an adequate boundary in this moment. Instead, verse 37 says, Jesus said, No, why don't you give them something to eat? Why don't you give them something to eat? So right now, the disciples are they're feeling completely frustrated with Jesus, with the situation, with the multitudes. They feel completely inadequate. What are you talking about, Jesus? He says Peter, or, or uh, Philip says, 200 denarii enough, couldn't give him a crumb. I don't know why he says 200 denarii. I'm guessing that that's maybe everything that was left in their money box. It's about two-thirds of an annual salary. What, Jesus, if we pour out the entire money box and, and we have nothing left, we'll have given everyone a crumb. That is, they're right at the very edge, and Jesus kind of goes and just pushes them. He just pushes them. So third, of course, there is Jesus. Uh, I would describe him as the uh, the Messiah provider in this moment because everyone is looking to him. The crowds came to this place not for the disciples. They came for him. They came to be touched by him. They came to be healed. They came to hear his message. They came to be with Jesus. How's Jesus feeling in this moment? Well, he's exhausted as well. If you look at the, the chronology of what's transpired up to this point in time, um, Matthew, I think, has the, the best chronology. Uh, chapter 12, Jesus has just experienced the official rejection of the Jewish leadership. They've said, Jesus, you, you have a, a, a demon. You're possessed by Satan. That's how you do all of these miracles. And they reject him. And then he goes to his hometown, and what does he experience? Rejection. His family, his brothers, his sisters, even his mother, they don't believe in him. His friends, those who've grown up with him, they don't believe him. His his own town, they reject him. Then he discovers that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by Herod. And then he goes and he does ministry himself, right? He sends the disciples out two by two to do ministry, but Jesus himself just doesn't sit around. He goes from village to village, and he touches people, and he heals people, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And at the end of this period, probably of several weeks, Jesus is utterly and completely exhausted Matthew chapter 14, it says, Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And by the time he gets to shore, there's 20,000 people, needy people, asking for more. So, in this moment where it would have seemed wise for Jesus to create an adequate boundary around himself and the disciples... And, and say, you know, not now. We need rest. Instead, he welcomes them. Why? Well, before we answer that question, uh, there's one other character. I call him the little hero. This is the boy. Uh, three of the Gospels, he's not even mentioned. Three of the Gospels, he's not even mentioned. Instead, the disciples say, we have five loaves and two fish, right? Which I, that's kind of around our house. We call that the royal we, like we need to take out the trash, right? which means probably me, which is fine, but the disciples say, we have five loaves and two fish. They didn't have anything, actually. They hadn't brought anything. But there was this boy. And I call him the hero for two reasons. He showed up prepared and he was ready to share. Or you think about it. Maybe it's an exaggeration that no one had anything. But by and large, you had 20,000 people who had raced out of their houses to find Jesus. Maybe they had a snack for the day or lunch. But now it's the end of the day and they have nothing to eat except this boy. And he still got something Not just for himself, but that's enough for him to share. And he hands it over. He gives it over. What's the point? Why did Jesus stop and do this miracle instead of sending them away? I think John offers an explanation. If you want to turn back to John chapter 6 and verse 26. John 6 verse 26 says, Jesus answered and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Uh, I think that there are uh, three lessons that Jesus intended to teach from this miracle. The first is this. People are hungry and they're foolish. By By foolish I mean they... They're hungry, and they think they know what will satisfy them, but they don't. Jesus says, I know why you, you came to me. You came because you wanted another meal, right? And you thought that would be enough, but you're going to get hungry again. And then you're going to eat and be filled, and then you're going to be hungry again. People are hungry, but we are, we are foolish. We think we know what will satisfy us, but we don't. Proverbs, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. And you and I, that's true of us, but also we're surrounded by people who are hungry and foolish, right? They present themselves as really needy, annoying people, right? They're they're always taking, they're always wanting, there's there's always something. Those relationships are are frustrating, they're annoying, and what do we want to do in those moments? We want to hit the ignore button, right? If you look at the Gospels, you see this over and over and over again. People are crying out to Jesus. Jesus, heal me, I'm blind. Jesus, heal me, I'm lame. Jesus, heal me, I'm a leper. And what is the disciples' response every time? Jesus, send them away. Jesus, tell them to stop yelling after us. Jesus, it's annoying. Jesus, it's embarrassing. That Syrophoenician woman, that's, that's awkward, Jesus. And these, there are people touching you, Jesus, and they're twisting around up. Jesus, create some boundaries, send them away. And what Jesus does is he looks at that and he has compassion for them because he sees beyond the annoyance to what they really need, right? He sees beyond even that that physical need that they think will satisfy them to a genuine need. I reminded my wife last night of a phrase she used to tell our kids all the time, uh, when they were growing up, and it's this, hurting people hurt people, right? So when, when people uh, hurt you, we would tell our kids, realize that's probably not about you. There's something broken in them. There's something hurting in them. And so they think that by hurting you, they'll feel better about themselves, right? Hurting people hurt, hurt people. These annoying people, why are they so annoying? Why, is the, why are they so frustrating? Why are they crying out? Because they have a need and they think Jesus can meet it, but they don't really even understand what their deeper need actually is. And so what Jesus does is he takes this opportunity to reach the physical need in order to turn and reach the spiritual need. Right? He's going to meet the, the immediate pressing need that they think will solve their problems and actually that gives them an opportunity to go deeper with them and address the spiritual need. And that's the second lesson. Only Jesus can satisfy Read with me in verse 28. Therefore they said to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and he said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, can we have another one of those meals? Can we have another one of those really amazing meals? Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us that bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. You think you know what you need, but you don't. You think you need another one of these miraculous meals, but you don't. What you need is the bread that comes down out of heaven, and that's me. So the feeding of the 5,000, right, it's recorded in all four Gospels, is a miracle that foreshadows the kingdom of God. It's a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, in which we, we will banquet, right? We will feast. We will, we will have perfect fellowship with God and with one another. It'll be a celebration. It's going to be a party. It's going to be an amazing and wonderful thing. And so what happened when he fed the 5,000? There's this commentary at the end. It says, they all ate and were satisfied. Or in John, it says, as much as they wanted, and then they were filled. And after everyone ate all that they could possibly want, and they're completely satisfied and they're full, Jesus says to his disciples, what? Go pick up the leftovers, <laughs> And how much was left? Twelve baskets. Why twelve baskets? There's nothing accidental in the gospel. Why twelve baskets? There are twelve tribes of Israel. For all of you, there's all you can eat until you're completely satisfied and then take home the leftovers. That's an image of the kingdom of God. That's an image of the kingdom of God. All that you most long for, all that you most need will be completely satisfied. All that creates pain and struggle and frustration will be completely eliminated. Instead, those longings and needs will be purified and amplified and ultimately met, and then there'll be leftovers after that. And Jesus says, all that you have to do to enter in the kingdom is you just have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) Whoa. That feels a little awkward. But he's not saying literally eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you trace the argument that Jesus makes for them, to eat his flesh is to believe. To drink his blood is to believe. It is to take him in. Just believe. You showed up unprepared. You showed up expecting to be served. And God says, let me serve you a meal. Let me serve you a meal. It's fit for a prince. It's fit for a princess. You can't prepare it. You don't deserve it. But I'm just going to give it to you. It's the, the blood of my son. It's the body of my son. Just believe. Take him into yourself. That's the gospel. And when you believe, Jesus says, then you have eternal life. So if you have believed right now, you have life that lasts forever. And you can anticipate the kingdom in which all that you most long for, all that you most need, and all of those things, They're, they're met completely, they're purified, they're wonderful, all those struggles, they're eliminated. You have that promise. But right now, you don't have it yet, do you? You, you just actually, you, you struggle. Paul says in Romans, you, you groan. You go, man, I can't wait for that. I know that I've, I will have it as a future possession, but, but what do I do now? I'm going to argue that that's, uh, in a sense, ultimately the, the point of this miracle and why Jesus did it. It's this, in the right hands, five loaves and two fish is more than enough. In the right hands, five loaves, two fish is more than enough. So Jesus did this miracle specifically to test his disciples. We're told in John's account, uh, specifically, he talks to Philip. And he knows what he's going to do, but he says, I'm going to test Philip anyway. And so they're right at the edge of their frustration. They have nothing left to give. And Jesus says, I know they need to eat, and it's really late, and they haven't brought any food, so why don't you just give them something to eat, Philip? (laughs) Literally impossible. Literally impossible. Philip and the other apostles, they, they cannot fulfill this need. It is literally impossible, but it's easy for Jesus. And so what does he do? Well, he takes bread, and he breaks it, and he says, Blessed art thou, O Lord, creator of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he hands it to them, and then they go and they serve 20,000 people. And where did the bread come from? It's this little boy who showed up prepared with a little bit extra, and he's ready to share. And so what was impossible for them was easy for Jesus. He takes their nothing. And he makes it into something. He does the same for you. He takes your nothing and he makes it into something. What is impossible for you is easy for Jesus. And the reason he does it, I think, right at this point in time, is he's trying to prepare his apostles because he's going to leave in a year. And he's going to hand them the ministry. And what they have to learn is that they are completely incapable of doing it. Right, he has to just in a sense he's just got to he's just got to scrape the foundation. And any and any pride that they might have had in, in their capacities has to be completely wiped away. And So he puts them in this impossible situation. He says, "Why don't you feed those 20,000?" <laughs> what, what, Jesus? Shake out the money box, spend all of it and everybody gets a crumb. It's it's impossible. What, this is actually it's pretty easy. Let me show you how. They have to learn that they are completely inadequate and that Jesus is completely powerful. And so, same lesson for us. Jesus doesn't need our adequacy. He just needs our availability. Just show up. Now, what's interesting is, as the story progresses, is that Jesus feeds the 20,000. It's the end of the day. So he says, okay, now it's time to go home. Right? It's time to go home. And he sends them away. And he says to his disciples, why don't you go back across the lake and I'll meet you there. And Jesus gets his time. He goes up on the mountain. He spends time with his Father. He prays all night. At the end of his time, being refreshed in the Father, he says, you know, it's probably time for me to to join my disciples. And where are the disciples at that point in time? They're in the middle of the lake. And they're struggling. Right Now, the details of of the story, I think, are really important. Um, First is this. There's five loaves of barley bread. Barley was the worst grain. That was the grain that they gave to the animals. And When they ran out of wheat for people, then they might get stuck eating barley. So you just got five lousy loaves, and then they only have two fish. And where does the miracle take place? Next to the Sea of Galilee that is filled with, and the profession of a third of them is fishing, and they can't, they can't get any fish out, right? right? And so they've just come Beth, from Bethsaida, and they're about to go back to Bethsaida, and Uh, I don't don't know if anybody's going to know this, but I'm just going to check. Does anybody know what the the word Bethsaida means? Somebody guessed in the first service and nailed it, didn't know, but guessed. It means a house of fishing. Okay, so they're right by the house of fishing next to the Sea of Galilee that's filled with fish and they're professional fishermen and they they can't do it. So even in their... Their area of competency, they're completely inadequate for the job, right? So Jesus does the miracle, he feeds everybody, he sends them off, and these fishermen are on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up and they're stuck, right? And they think they're gonna die, right? They they can't they can't get across the lake. And so Jesus just starts walking past them. What's up, guys? They think it's a ghost initially, right? They're completely scared, and then they recognize, oh, that looks like Jesus, we were just with him a few hours ago. And Peter calls out to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if that's really you, command me to walk out to you on the water. Which, I'll be honest, I, never, I don't understand Peter's logic at all. I mean, think about it for a second, right? If it wasn't Jesus, let's say it's a demon or something, right? The demon would go, Sure, come on out, right? And then Peter sinks and drowns. I, what, I just, anyway, my mind just kind of goes there on rabbit trails. And I, but I think, what was Peter thinking? But he says, command me to walk. And Jesus says, walk. So it is actually Jesus. Peter gets out. And what does he do? Peter walks on water. Can people walk on water? Okay. Okay. But did Peter walk on water? Did Peter walk on water? He did. Peter walked on water. So people can walk on water. How did Peter walk on water? He, just, he kept his eyes on Jesus. And then when he didn't keep his eyes on Jesus and he looked at the storm, then what happened? Peter began to sink and drown, right? Can people walk on water? Yes, they can. If their eyes are on Jesus, can, can people feed 20,000 out of nothing? Yes. If they're with Jesus, if he's breaking the bread, right? And he's serving. Can, can people raise other people from the dead? Well, Peter did and Paul did. Right? They did amazing, miraculous things. How did this happen? They kept their eyes on Jesus. So at the end of the, the story of Jesus walking on water, it says this. Then Jesus got in the boat with them. The wind stopped. Storm's not a problem. They were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incidence of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They just didn't get it, right? And then a little while later, people are going to be hungry again, and there's going to be uh, another 3,000, and they're out of bread, and what do they do? Well, Jesus feeds them again, and then they're in the boat, and they have no bread themselves, and everybody starts arguing about it. It's like, you guys just don't get it. So what he does for them, time after time after time after time, over this next year, is he puts them in completely impossible situations, so they, they will learn that they are... Utterly inadequate in themselves. But Jesus is completely adequate and powerful. To feed 20,000, to walk on water, to to raise the dead, and to give eternal life. Jesus can do all that. They just have to be available. Not adequate in themselves, just available. I love this quote from Hudson Taylor. He was complimented one time on the effectiveness of his, his ministry, China Inland Mission. He said this, It seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a person who was weak enough to do his work. And when he at last found me, he said, he's weak enough, he'll do. All God's giants have been weak people who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. So, uh, as we close, we're we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to take the bread and we're going to drink the cup. Uh, And as we're served, I want you to take a moment and and ask yourself... um, who are your 20,000, so to speak, you know, that Jesus is calling you to feed or, or uh, what water is he calling you to walk on? And maybe it's um, a needy person that he's saying, I know they're taking and taking and taking and I want you to continue to love or I want you to forgive or I want you to finally get to that point that you speak the gospel to them and you say, I've got nothing. Perfect. Right? That's exactly where you need to be. Because then Jesus steps in with his adequacy and his strength, and he does it for you. I want you to meditate on this prayer from Paul. He said this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask, or in some translations it says even imagine, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Jesus wants to get us exactly to that point right, where we're completely out and we realize, I I can't. Then we have to turn to him and say, but Jesus can. And then he gets all of the credit for these miraculous things that he does, walking on water and breaking bread and feeding 20,000, raising the dead. Uh, Because we finally got to the point where we we admitted we we can't do it. We can't love like we're supposed to. We can't forgive like we're supposed to. We can't be courageous like we're supposed to. But Jesus can through us. And the proof of that is that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, right? With, with the bread and the cup that is his body and his blood, he gave us life, right? We, sh- we showed up into this world completely unprepared for our greatest challenge. And Jesus stepped into our lives. He says, I can take care of that for you. I can remove that debt of sin forever. I can give you myself. So as we're uh, being served, if I could ask the servers to come forward, let's just take a moment and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, and not just removing this dead of sin, but now giving me power to live like you and live differently. So we'll wait till everyone's served, and then we'll, we'll take the cup and the bread together. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and then they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that... One may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's take the bread together. So Jesus said to them Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, for giving your body and your blood, for giving yourself completely so that we could be rescued from the dead of sin and the consequence of death. We could have hope, we have life forever. I pray, Father, that uh, even in this moment, our hearts would be filled with, with gratitude that uh, your son was prepared and adequate to do that for us. And we give you thanks for Jesus.